Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, what a treat today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Today, we have Eric Adams, New York City mayoral candidate. And he's got a day job, too. He's Brooklyn Borough President. He joins us here in studio. Uh, Mr. Adams, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, you still have a general election to go, but let's make the assumption that you per, that you win that election. What is job one for you and your new administration? A public safety. We, we have to be safe. I stated this over and over again. The prerequisite to prosperity is public safety and just, justice. I must allow, allow New Yorkers to know that they're going to be safe on our, their subway system when they return back to their offices. Uh, our individuals that go to restaurants are not going to be robbed like we saw a few days ago while they sit down and have dinner. This city must be safe for tourism to return and for businesses to grow and thrive. How do we do that, or how does a city do that? Is it simply numbers, more cops, better trained cops, better deployment of cops? How do we do that? It's a combination. Uh, the bad guys are watching the good people of this city squabble with each other over uh, technical aspects and how we police. Uh, so I'm going to hit reset with the, my police officers and let them know I have their backs. But I'm also going to send a loud message that if you don't respect the nobility of public protection, you can't serve in my agency. And we're going to reintroduce ourselves to the men and women who are protecting us. Yeah, I saw, uh, I, I was back in New York, um, where I'm from, actually. I went to PS75 uh, for kindergarten. Uh, <laughs> I was back in New York in July, and um, I was hanging out on 125th Street and Lex, waiting for an Uber. I saw a group of people riding stolen motorcycles past a few squad cars. Not, none of the police moved a finger. I turned around. Somebody was selling drugs right behind me. The police clearly could see it, not doing anything about it. How do you motivate a police force that is just seemingly given up? And, and that's true. You, you motivate them by letting them know that one of their own will be moving into the position of ensuring that they get the support they need to get their, to do their jobs. And you're right. I've witnessed it as well. Uh, just a hands-off approach to dealing with those quality of life issues. And that's not acceptable. A city as diverse and as large as New York, it's imperative that we have a set of standards and how do we expect to treat our neighbors. Uh, I watch a group of people on ATVs driving up to down the sidewalk of by uh, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan uh, near Prospect, um, near, near Central Park. Uh, we can't have a city of disorder. We can do it without heavy-handedness, but at the same time, we need to create a standard of expectations in our city. 
All right, so Mr. Adams, you when you came into the Bloomberg interact, uh, Bloomberg headquarters here on Lexington Avenue and 58th Street, you might have seen that in this block between 58th and 59th Street on Lexington, every storefront was vacant. And pre-pandemic, they were thriving with some seemingly big box stores as well as some local retailers. How do we bring business back to, how do we reopen New York City? How do we bring business back to New York City? Uh, one thing uh, I have been doing for the last two and a half, three years, uh, having focus groups with business leaders and finding out how do we do just that. And I was alarmed to discover how too expensive, too bureaucratic, and too difficult it is to do business in the Empire State. We were a, uh, a city where we built empires, but cities are made up of agencies. And if those agencies are in the way of building empires, we would never be able to allow it to happen. Uh, this is a city that is vibrating with 10 million dreams. Uh, those dreams are about to wake up, and they're going to wake up because I'm going to create a city that is open for business, where we're going to utilize our agencies and our manpower to make sure businesses are here. We're going to attract them with incentives. We're going to encourage them to develop in the outer boroughs. Uh, we're going to build out the pipeline of talent so that we can fill the jobs that are available. Right now, no one wants to do business in this city because we have been defined as a business enemy city instead of a business friendly city. It is too expensive and I think uh, for residents as well. I, I say this as a free market capitalist and I'm sure that almost all of our listeners and m most of our clients also believe in free markets. On the other hand, if you're uh, you know, a family of three or four or five and you're working a middle-class job in New York, there's no way you can afford uh, an apartment big enough for the family. How do, you de how do you deal with that as mayor? Well, clearly we have decimated uh, the middle class in the city. Uh, there are a lot of incentives for low income and high income, but we forgot the backbone of our city. And I believe the backbone is that teacher and accountant, uh, that backbone, believe it or not, is even uh, the fast food workers. We were successful in getting them to receive a $15 minimum wage. Uh, you have a husband and wife. Uh, they are moved into an area where the city is unaffordable. And so we must reinvest in the Mitchell Lama style programs yep. that we had and the officer teacher next door programs that we had where we incentivize people to be able to not only rent but purchase. And then we should look at uh, our affordable housing uh, program and look at some form of affordable housing with ownership in that affordable housing. Uh, how do we carry it out so people can start owning and building equity in the city that they love? So we must ensure that in areas that government can control, such as rent, we must ensure that we have a cross-section based on income bands of low-income, middle-income uh, New Yorkers so that they can stay in the city that they love. Uh, Mr. Adams, talk to us about infrastructure. We've, um, you know, the subways and just general infrastructure in this city. Challenge, we just had the recent, uh, you know, the remnants from the Hurricane Ida, you know, putting a crimp into the subway system for about 24 hours. How do you think about infrastructure in this city? Great question. Uh, you know, we need to be honest with ourselves. Uh, we screwed up the planet. And it, we yep. didn't do it in one day. We did it over years of uh, improper treating of the planet. 
So we're not going to fix this instantly. We must have an intervention plan and a prevention plan. Prevention are the long-term things. Every new sewer project, we should build it with a 100-year outlook of can it withstand the water levels and the changes in our environment. Uh, we need to look at how do we learn how to live with water. Uh, there's some amazing programs that are taking place globally. I'm getting ready to take a trip to the Netherlands so I can look at some of the things that they're doing. But then we need intervention right now. Uh, Mother Nature is not going to wait mm -hmm. for us to build out our sewer systems. So we need to have early warning systems, identify those uh, basement apartments and give people the proper uh, escape routes, invest in legalizing some of the units, uh, build large retaining pools. Uh, we could use some of our open spaces to build large retaining pools to deal with water spill off, spill off and to hold the water until uh, we deal with the emergency situation. Uh, something they're doing in Hoboken right now right. where they're building basketball courts over retaining pools. So we have to think differently and embrace the concepts that are coming from the experts who we have been meeting with, but there must be a two-pronged attack, both intervention and prevention. Have you got any, um, you know, think differently solutions to the congestion, the traffic, the double parking? You know, it's always been an issue with New York, but cities around the world are coming up with other ideas and ways to fight it. I'm a congestion pricing guy. I believe in it. I believe the concept is important. It's similar to what uh, London has done uh, many years ago. Uh, I think it's important that we do so. Uh, but I also believe we need to incentivize uh, truck deliveries. A lot of our congestion is coming from deliveries. We need to start delivering at night. And I think if we incentivize that, we can get a lot of de the deliveries done. Uh, and then we need to use altern alternative methods of transportation. Uh, th that's everything from the scooters, uh, the, you know, the mopeds. I, I visit many countries, uh, bike use. Uh, when I'm in China, or in other parts of the globe, people are using uh, non-cars to get around. For those who can do so, not only do, does it encourage a greater level of mobility, diversity, uh, but it, does, it also deals with the congestion because this con congestion is not sustainable in the city. Too much is, lose, is lost doing business in the city because you're stuck in traffic somewhere. And then we must create a first-rate transportation system. I'm a train user. I have a metro car. Uh, we create a safe, first-rate transportation system. Uh, people will utilize our subways and buses. Inequality. As this city builds back, reopens, how do we ensure it reopens and builds back for everyone? It's so true. Uh, that is a real problem we have in the city. Uh, the inequalities that we're witnessing is leading to the lack of prosperity for so many New Yorkers. And it's just on so many levels we must do so. And it's not going to be done in the first four years. What I must do, if I'm fortunate enough to become the mayor, is to build the foundation that other mayors can build on. Uh, the inequalities is to go to the source. Number one, education. Uh, we need to deal with children with special needs and learning disabilities. Uh, one study showed that over 30% of our prison population, mm -hmm. a place like, uh, like uh, Texas, uh, were dyslexic. Uh, we don't dis do dyslexia screening in our city. Um, learning disabilities, uh, you see 55% of the inmates at Rikers are dealing with learning disabilities. Yep. So one way of ending inequalities is to focus on education so people can have the opportunities they deserve. 
Eric Adams, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Eric Adams, New York City mayoral candidate and Brooklyn Borough President, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to bring in Megan Horneman, Director of Portfolio Strategy Advertence Capital Advisors. They have about $2.6 billion in assets under management located in Hunt Valley, Maryland, just outside of Charm City of Baltimore. Megan, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, let's turn to earnings here and valuation and some of the old-time fundamental stuff here. We've had some really good earnings over the past several quarters, but some economic concerns, you know, from the Delta variant and so on are maybe causing some people to question some of the earnings estimates out there for Qs 3 and 4. How do you think about that and uh, potential risk for this market? Yeah, so I think we, we've likely seen that peak um, in the earnings growth rate. Uh, we probably saw that this year. And now there's just a little bit more uncertainty because people had come into the third quarter with such heightened expectations for economic growth. And now a lot of the data has been mixed. I mean, you can see that even just by looking at the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index that's deeply in negative territory. Um, I know we got some some positive news from the consumer, um, but it is on the back of some downward revisions to the prior months. And then, as as mentioned, your consumer confidence is still relatively weak. So I think you're going to see some estimates coming down, not just from the earnings perspective, but also from the um, economic growth perspective as well. We have uh, our own economic surprise index as well, and a really cool page that you can um, pull it up with ECSU. Paul, just in case you're wondering, yep, ECSU I'm pu- putting it in right now. is the command, and obviously um, it matches up with uh, Megan with the city uh, surprise index. We've seen you can you can if you click on the the chart on ECSU go, you can blow up the surprise index. Um, look look at um, or zoom in to what we've seen happen over the last I don't know um, I guess six months. It hit a high in. April, May, and has come down now into pretty extreme negative territory. Um, Does this offer opportunities, you think, Megan? I don't think quite yet. I think there's still some more. There's some other things in the market that keep us a little hesitant. Um, We have some dry powder. We have cash in portfolios that we're waiting to put to work. We're still optimistic long term. But in the very near term, I I think there's still some other risks that we have to digest, whether it's from the political standpoint. Um, There's going to be a lot of noise just over the next next couple months. Um, The Federal Reserve next week. Valuation still even with the, the modest, you know, weakness we've seen here, and I say very modest, keep in mind the S&P is only down about 2%. Um, it's, this isn't really a, a pullback that we're seeing here, um, but the valuations still look a little bit stretched here. And Do you expect a pullback? Do you expect uh, – we've been hearing so many warnings of maybe there's a 10 even 15% pullback to come. I think that there is chance for this to continue to get for us to go a bit weaker from here. I can't pinpoint exactly whether it'll be 10 or 15 percent, but I think we're well overdue for at least a, a minimum of 5 percent correction. We haven't even or pullback. We haven't even had that this year yet. Megan, where are you suggesting your clients uh, allocate their equity portfolios? Is it more in the growth, typical growth kind of a portfolio that has worked so well for boy, a decade or more? 
or is it some of the more cyclical trades that might be more sensitive to maybe you know you know rising inflation a reopening economy that type of thing yeah, we, we have a little bit of both in our portfolios, but we definitely have um, more of the value tilt, given our view that we think the cyclical trade has room to go. And also, we think that interest rates are going to go higher from here. I think that everybody knows that. But I think interest rates right now just aren't justified where they are looking at long-term you know, 10-, 30-year Treasury yields. That's just not justifiable. And when you're talking about the Fed tapering, those types of things will weigh on those expensive you know, uh, growth types of stock. So we have more of a value chill here in the U.S. You expect a serious taper? Uh, I think you're going to get the the first, um, you know, a, a solid suggestion about it um, in the meeting next week. I think you'll start to see the actual taper taping, taking place before the end of this year, probably in the, in the November meeting. Um, but I think they're probably going to kind of see get us through this debt ceiling that we have at the end of this month. I don't think you're going to get a, a firm commitment of it starting next week. I think it'll probably be in November or December, and then they'll have that continue to taper through um, the, all of next year, and they'll continue to say, you know, interest rates and tapering are not tied together. So the interest rate hikes are still a ways off. Megan, do you get a lot of incoming calls from your clients about crypto? And if so, what do you tell them? Uh, We've been um, pretty vocal in some of our publications about the the crypto market. Um, We, at this time, we're not investing in in the cryptocurrency market or any of the other um, crypto type of um, investments. There's still, this is such a um, the, the crypto market and all of these other crypto coins and things, we, this is a very new um, kind of experiment um, trying to look at, at, at things as using this as some sort of a, a form of tender. But I just don't think that at this time that it really warrants us investing in it. It's way too volatile for our clients. This doesn't have a place in client portfolios. Um, we don't believe it's going to take over any kind of a, the regular, you know, the U.S. dollar or anything from a currency perspective. And you know, regulation, I think, is the biggest risk that you're going to see in the crypto market. could really take the, the wind out of the sails here and then also just spark volatility. And that's just not something that we, that we find, um, profit, find a good place in portfolios. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Great to get your take, and I hope we can get you back on the program soon. Megan Horneman there, Director of Portfolio Strategy at Verdant's Capital Advisors out of Hunt Valley, Maryland, where they have about $2.6 billion of assets under management. Earlier, I said we were going to bring in Morgan Stanley's Global Chief Economist, Seth Carpenter, and we've got him on the line right now. Seth, great to have you with us. Um, I guess the overriding question is, what does the global economy look like right now after a big spike in the Delta variant? Is it uh, rolling over? Are we reopening again? What's your view? Yeah, it's great to, it's great to be on with, with both of you. So thank you for having me. You know, in the medium term, we're, we're pretty constructive. And then there are a bunch of asterisks to talk about downside risks, but you sort of nailed it with the, the Delta variant being there. So what have we seen? We've seen a clear deceleration, but there was always going to be a bit of a deceleration once we got past the surge in growth from reopening and settled into something you know, more medium term and, and sustainable. So we still feel like we'll see the slowdown, but it'll be sustained. What's driving that? I mean, look at global trade, for example. Trade in consumer goods sort of exploded out and brought us back to pre-COVID levels. We're seeing now trade in capital goods in a CapEx cycle. What could get in the way, though, is if Delta is not as contained as we think. So as you implied and as we think, you know, we're peaking with Delta. It should be subsiding. 
And if that's the case, then we should see continued, you know, reasonably strong growth from consumers globally, not just in the U.S. And the one part of global trade that's uh, lower than pre-COVID levels is trade and services, especially tourism. And if travel restrictions keep getting lifted, you know, we should see that coming back as well. Seth, I'm a uh, logistics uh, geek here, and I'm just fascinated by by this global supply chain uh, challenges out there, and it's affecting all types of companies and industries. We hear that in their quarterly conference calls. Um, How does that impact your global uh, economic outlook if we can't get goods to where they need to be in a timely fashion? Uh, So, yeah, I think think you're right to focus on it, and I think the even more sort of – nerdy part of it is that there are nonlinear implications here. It's not as though there's a producer that has a supplier, and if that supplier uh, has trouble, then we have a supply chain issue. It's the fact that there are producers, many of them, who have suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers as well. And so when uh, a country somewhere has a COVID case flare-up and there are these very intense restrictions put in place to to limit things, you can get uh, a disruption that just spreads out in a very rapid way. So, you know, we're trying to monitor those sorts of things as well as we can. We turn to our colleagues who are the equity analysts who cover specific firms. The general feedback we're getting is things have got past their worst for supply chain disruptions, and they're gradually getting better. You can look at some of the PMI-type surveys and look at how long the delivery delays are. And those also give you the impression that we got past the worst and things are slowly starting to normalize. By no means good right now, but hopefully starting to heal. And so, again, it was, that is the baseline view that the supply chains are going to get fixed over time. you got to feel pretty good as a baseline, but we have seen flare-ups time and again. And, and so I think, again, uh, you don't want to get too complacent and just assume that everything's uh, on a steady path back to normal. Well, I'm sure that um, Jay Powell and Christine Lagarde would agree with you. Nonetheless, it doesn't really seem like all of these asset purchases are doing that much should they be wrapping this stuff up is it time to taper (laughs) well i mean i think just listening to the fed commentary themselves the answer is yes and so powell uh and the rest of the committee has said that uh tapering this year is is their baseline view and so i see no reason to disagree with them you know our view is slightly more probability on december than the than november whereas november is clearly from my perspective market consensus you know the last um, CPI report, the last uh, retail sales report, the last jobs report have shown us that forecasting in current circumstances is even harder than usual. And so I think that favors a slightly more patient Fed to accumulate, you know, two more jobs report before tapering instead of just the one that they're going to get at uh, the November meeting. But nevertheless, it seems like they're set to start tapering. I think the ECB is a little trickier there. Uh, President Lagarde said, uh, in her press conference, you know, the the lady isn't tapering uh, and trying to draw a big distinction between the PEP, the emergency uh, QE program versus the APP uh, ongoing QE program. You know, our the Morgan Stanley European Economics Team uh, expects uh, as the PEP program is tapered down, the APP program gets more flexible and actually picks up a little bit. Um, you know, is that constructive? You ask, should they be wound down? I think the challenge that the ECB has to confront is where inflation expectations are for them and how, how low they are. Their own forecasts have inflation coming back down well below 2%, you know, 1.5% or so uh, in coming years. That for them, I think, is the key st- 
struggle if they ever want to get their inflation rate back up to their 2% target. And I think that, uh, from from the ECB's perspective, is the real reason to keep going with um, their QE program is to try to support those inflation expectations. Seth, how coordinated are the global central banks these days? As again, this is a global issue, like you know, we haven't really seen before. How coordinated are they? Should they be more coordinated? How do you view it? Yeah. So. Um, It's interesting. So I spent 15 years doing central banking at the Fed. And one thing that always happens is lots of communication, coordination, where they actually take actions together is quite rare. And I think now we're actually in a place where there's meaningful divergence that's starting to happen. And I think right now that divergence is between EM central banks and DM central banks in general. And then as we get into next year and beyond, it'll be divergence between the ECB on the one hand and other developed market central banks. And what I mean here is you know, inflation, is, the inflation surge is, is, is global. It's likely to be transitory, but a lot of EM uh, uh, central banks are saying we can't rely on anchored inflation expectations given the performance of inflation in recent decades. So they have to be a little bit more reactive to the high inflation. And so we're seeing, for example, LATAM central banks shifting to a, 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 a hawkish stance uh, in, in contrast to where the DM uh, central banks are. Um, and I, I think, you know, that makes sense. They also have to react to the market starting to say, wow, the Fed's going to start to taper. And after that, at some point, the Fed's going to start to hike. Mm-hmm. And they have to worry about depreciation, possibly exacerbating inflation. Fast forward to next year when we see the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada starting to tighten policy. And then we think the Fed actually raises rates in the middle of 2023. Right. That's going to be very different than the ECB with their inflation outlook. I think they're in trouble if they have any communication um, missteps and inflation expectations go lower, not higher. You know, if you push our European econ- economics team and you say, when, when is the ECB going to hike? They, they say, well, 2025. <laughs> and I say, yeah, 2025, but with a risk to never because, right. you know, I'm an economist. We forecast. But how good is the forecast right. 2025? So much could go wrong. Right. So exactly. All right, Seth. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Seth Carpenter, Global Chief Economist for Morgan Stanley, joining us. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, we are truly global. Uh, We not only cover what happens in New York, but we also cover what happens outside of Detroit. Let's go to David Detroit now. Uh, sorry, Summit, New Jersey. David, sorry, yeah, Summit, the, New Jersey. The, it is a booming outdoor dining capital of New Jersey. Yeah, I don't know how I, I, I was thinking of something else. Anyway, David uh, Dietz joins us, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. We've got about $10 billion of assets under management, so not that far off from New York. David, what did you think about the our interview with the next mayor. I mean, how important is uh, is New York to Summit New Jersey? 
Uh, well, it's critical, I think. I mean, I would say that uh, close to 80 percent of the residents of Summit, New Jersey, have historically commuted into New York. Now, we'll see, of course, in this post-pandemic world, whether there's a little bit more permanent remote working. But uh, the Summit depends on New York and, and our real estate prices go up as New York real estate prices go up. So whatever's good for New York is going to be good for Summit. And David, I just so you know, I hopped on New Jersey Transit from Summit today, make my way into to New York. Everybody, trains are more packed, I will say. They're much more crowded than they were even a couple of weeks ago. So it looks like people slowly are coming back to work. So David, is your day job is looking at these markets here and trying to get a sense of where the next six to 12 months are. I'm a valuation guy. You know, I'm a little, I'm more than a little. I'm a lot concerned with valuation here. Yes, I know the 10 years at, you know, 1.38%, but still, this is a big multiple. How do you think about valuation? Yeah, so valuation is critical, of course, because we all know that the more you pay, the lower is going to be your returns. But I, I guess I would push back just a little bit insofar as um, you know, your key valuation metric perhaps is what you can uh, earn in terms of alternatives like putting your money in a CD, like buying a 10-year treasury. And we've got historic lows on those levels. Indeed, the yield on the S&P 500 is about comparable with that yield on the 10-year treasury. Now, 10-year treasury's payout is going to be locked in for the next 10 years. Historically, dividends move up 2 to 10% each year. So if people put a gun to my head and say, Dave, where am I going to make more money over the next 10 years with, with the dividend payout on stocks going up and presumably asset prices moving up as well, it's, it seems to tilt pretty well in favor of fixed income. Of course, it's not going to be a straight line. One other thing I point out is, remember, uh, Matt, you know, five companies at the very top of the S&P 500 account for 25% of the overall weighting of that market, that index, okay? And those are the ones that, for example, Microsoft trading at 33 times earnings. If you strip those out, although it's not a cheap market, it's certainly more reasonably priced. Well, some stocks are cheap. Some uh, industries or regions have taken a hit. I noticed that some of your ideas, Wells Fargo taken a beating lately, Exxon as well, iShares, large cap China. Is the idea that the bad news you think is, is, has passed on these? Well, you know, uh, we, we do like to buy things that, you know, have solid valuations but are a little bit out of favor. So let's look at China for a moment here. You know, the China large-cap ETF is down 37% since March. So if the, if the concern is we're at nosebleed valuations, China may be the antidote. Of course, that doesn't mean things are going to turn around. But the more I look at it, and I was certainly heartened by the fact that they injected about $14 billion of reserves in the past 24 hours into the economy, it doesn't make any sense for the second largest economy, to, if it wants to be a true geopolitical power, to kneecap that private sector. It just doesn't really make sense. Now, there's a lot of noises here, but to destroy the value of companies like Alibaba and Tencent, well, what do they really get out of that? Yeah, it's been an extraordinarily uh, difficult time for those stocks there, and it just kind of highlights you know, the, the whole quote-unquote China risk uh, that people always had in the back of their mind, but boy, is it coming to roost here. Uh, David, back closer to home with the U.S. stocks here. Do I go reopening cyclical small caps, or do I stick with my big cap growthy Amazon, Apples, Googles kind of things? 
Obviously, you want to be diversified, but I share the concern we started the conversation with that our that valuations are an issue. So, if valuations are an issue, you got to be cautious with Microsoft. You got to be cautious with, uh, for example, Amazon. And and we like, for example, financial services. We think that five years from now, interest rates will be higher as inflation picks up, as the economy picks up, and loan demand goes up. And you know, the financial services companies are so well poised to benefit from that because the price of their key product loans will will go up. Historically, they're not trading much above what they've normally traded at in the last 20 years in terms of relative to book value. The one we're- Uh-oh. Did I? I think we off? might have lost David Dietz. From- oh, I thought it was me for a second. Yeah, well, uh, which- <laughs> maybe, there's probably some problems, you know, in the uh, in Summit. Maybe the phone issues out there in Summit. I'll have to check on that when I get home. We didn't even get to get to Bud. Yes, I know. Did I we? mean, I mean, no, we didn't. You know, Anheuser Busch. He likes Anheuser Busch as well, which I wanted to ask about. Now, it's shocking if you pull up the chart, right? Bud, yep. uh, the ticker B U D, obviously, and the beer um, has risen this year up to eighty dollars a share, but it's now back down at fifty-seven. Yeah, and I wonder why that is. I mean, we're people drinking more bud at home and you think when they go out to the bars in the reopening trade they're gonna be ordering um you know yever or uh <laughs> Varsteiner, bex something a little bit more highbrow or is the idea that the delta variant has stopped people from going out and ordering a bud at the ballpark here's I what i think what, it is i yeah. think it's the hard seltzer thing it's a fad it's gone it's over the white claw every Oh, and Anheuser-Busch makes – it's not – you're right. They, they don't just make beer. They make that stuff too. Well, it's for the whole industry. It's for the whole industry. And that was kind of – that was one of the really near-term growth drivers for, um, you know, the malt liquor business, if you will, kind of the beer business over the last couple of years is these uh, hard seltzers. It was kind of like the, the wine coolers of our day. So, But it, it was a you fad. I think it's rolled over. Zima. What's that? It reminded me of Zima. When I was in high school – there was uh, there was a malt liquor beverage called Zima. Yeah, I remember that. It was clear and absolutely delicious. Really? Oh, you didn't drink that, did you? <laughs> well, I did when I was 15. <laughs> um, but obviously, adults aren't down. And that's the same with the hard seltzer, right? Uh, we got David Dietz back. Let me, David, just ask you quickly about Anheuser-Busch. Why has it been hit so hard uh, coming from 80 down to 57? And why do you like it? Sure, absolutely. So we, we like it because when you talk about beer, you know, it's got um, it's one of the largest consumer products companies in the world. It's got like 10 of the 20 largest brands. So why is it 25% off from the start of the summer? I think several things. One is um, Boston Beer, which is big on the hard seltzer, announced very disappointing continuing uh, trend in, in hard seltzer. So the whole category was sold off. But of course, we know Bud is a lot more than hard seltzer. Second, of course, there is concern about this surging dollar. Um, and, of course, so much of their revenues come in from overseas. That's not helpful. And, yeah. of course, the big difference between the start of the summer and now is the continuing uh, Delta yeah. variant issues. And so, so much of their business comes in from the emerging markets. There's real questions that yes, delay in the reopening point. trade. But I think it's if you have global. a longer-term view, you'll do well. Yeah. All right, David, thanks. I'm glad we got you back in for that. David Dietz talking to us there from PPAC Private Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.